You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Do you live on purpose? Do you feel you have a calling? Or do you work for money, maybe great money, at something that you do not love? Or do you do what you do because you believe you have no choice? Whatever your answer, it's a story. Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. We're fortunate that our host, Audible, is enriching lives. They are offering you, our storytellers, a free audiobook download of your choice, plus a one-month free trial of all of Audible service, and you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and take advantage of this wonderful gift. Remember that this show is enriched by our dialogue with you. So keep your comments and inspired thoughts coming. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Today's guest lives on purpose. He didn't go to school to master his skill or discover the gift he gives to the world. His life and death battles on the streets of Philadelphia helped him become the man he is today helped him become a respected public speaker and a powerful mentor to inner-city youth. Get ready for inspiration and maybe even massive change in your life as you listen to Will Latif Little. Will, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. It is my pleasure. Where were you born, Will? I was born in North Carolina, a little city called Lowesville. And, but you lived, did you live most of your life there or most of your life in Philadelphia? Well, my mother moved to Philadelphia when I was like six months, six to eight months years old, uh, because her and my father got into a domestic dispute often, and um, she wanted to just relocate and and she took me and my three sisters at the time uh, to Philadelphia, where we were raised at. Okay. And who would you say influenced you the most when you were a child? Well, I really can't say anyone influenced me at all. I just, I just took a uh, look into everything. You know, I just watched everything and everyone. I don't know what kind of influence they had on me, but, you know, as a child, we all pick up behaviors from different people that we're around. It's mostly learned behavior. So um, no one in particular influenced me. Okay, but well, you know, 
When you look back, because you've had quite a journey, and we're going to explore that in the call today in the in the podcast. When you look back, was there any one person you think who may have influenced you to take a road, the road that you first took? Well, initially, like when I was a young kid, I was I was I was the kind of child that was very quiet, uh, introvert. And I just observed a lot of things. I, I was raised in a house with my four sisters. My mother had another child when we got to Philadelphia from a boyfriend. So she had another daughter. And now I have four sisters, my mother and my grandmother. So it was all women in the house with me. I was the only, only boy in the house. So I would watch TV and things of that nature and look at different shows and just try to pick up things. My uncle was uh, in my life a little bit, but he lived in Virginia. So he'll come to Philadelphia every once in a while and, uh, and spend time with us. Mm-hmm. But um, as a, a male figure or a male role model, um, besides my mother boyfriends, you know, it's, I, I really look, looked up to no one because I wanted to look up to my father. So right. I look at them as my father. So I didn't look up to them to identify who I was as a kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, did, did you have a childhood dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Yes, um, as, as I grew older, five and seven, eight years old, I wanted to be a police officer at one time. Then I wanted to be a, a fireman, you know, who saves lives. And uh, then as I grew in my teenage years, 13, 14, I wanted to be a basketball player. Things that we thought that would be, uh, allow us to become successful and be able to take care of our families and, and move us ourselves out the ghetto and stuff like that. So more, more likely, I, I leaned to sports later on in my teenage years. Now, when you, you talk about being in the ghetto in, in Philadelphia, what, what what was it specifically like where you were growing up? Well, it was mainly um, a lot of violence, um, poor schools, poor education, uh, a lot of drug addict, addictic people who lived in the neighborhood, uh, people who were supported by welfare. Um, my mother, she had like a, a, a low income job. She worked as a, a uh, a host in a restaurant, you know, or she bartended uh, different places, you know, trying to make ends meet, raising five children on her own. So it was very, very poor, very, very um, hopeless. A lot of people that didn't have a lot of hope for themselves or, or for their children, you know, so uh, that kind of mentality that we were dealing with mm. every day mm. in life. Mm. You know? I don't know why this just jumps to my mind. Have you ever seen a movie called... Uh, Menace to society. Yes, indeed, exactly. Powerful, huh? Yeah, exactly, just like that. Yeah. Oh, man. Now, would you say that there was a person, one person or an incident that robbed you of your childhood? Well, I will say um, the one of the things I really know that changed my life was the time when my mother got into a fight with her boyfriend when I was 13 years old. And I experienced... Uh, as a kid growing up, my mother going through different battles with some of her boyfriends, especially her last child's father, you know, and um, just by seeing that and not being able to do anything about it, I'm like six and seven years old. So me being the only boy, I knew that I had to really step up to the plate and become the man in the house eventually one day. So I couldn't be scared of the dark. I couldn't be scared of people trying to break in the house. I had to be the protector of the house, my mother and my four sisters. But at the age of 13, you know, I was a little bigger, 
probably like five foot nine, 140 pounds. And my mother got into a fight with her boyfriend at that time. And um, I heard it in my room. I ran out my room, I ran into her room and I jumped on the guy's back because I wasn't having that happen no more. You know, I jumped on the guy's back, so I threw punches at him. And then he um, threw me off his back and, and said, you think you're a man now? And I was like, yeah, I'm a man, you know? You're not gonna be hitting on my mother like that no more. That's, that's not going down. So he's like, all right, if you think you're a man, come on outside. So I know this guy carried a gun every day, a 38 Dillinger. I know he drank kind of heavy sometimes, and sometimes he'll be drunk in the house, and they get into their arguments and stuff like that. But um, I just wasn't having it. I was fed up with it. And I went outside. My mom said, don't go outside. I said, no, I'm going outside. Mom. I, I got to do this. you know. And I was upset because my father wasn't there. I couldn't call him. I couldn't call my uncles because they all lived in North Carolina. You know, so I was really upset about that. I had no help. I was just only me, but I was going to deal with it. So when I went outside, he grabbed me by my chest, uh, the sh by my shirt on my chest and threw me up against the wall and pulled out his 38 Dillinger and pointed it like two inches away from my face and told me, do not ever jump into a fight with him and my mother again. At that time, I became furious. I was really, really angry and I just showed no expression. I showed no fear. I showed... You no, know, I ain't look away, you know, I ain't look down. I just stared them in the eyes. I stared at that gun and was saying to myself, like, I'm, I'm going to kill this person when I get over there. I'm going to kill him. You know, so that kind of shaped my mentality as far as dealing with people in the main streets of Philadelphia, you know, mm -hmm. and just dealing with bullies, just people just take advantage of people. Mm -hmm. I did not like stuff like that. So that kind of made the, the shift change mentally to become that criminal mind. Mm, mm. Now, do you know what became of that guy? No, but he got strung out on drugs. In reality, I haven't told too many people this story, but I think I wrote it in my book when I did my autobiography. I did run into him when I was 19 years old before I got locked up for the homicide. Uh, like, like a week before, and I, and I was going to shoot him. I walked over to him to kill him to shooting because I remember it just flashed back in my head. And it's like, what, six years later, you know, um, when I walked up to him, he was drugged out. He was like on crack really bad. And I was like, the drugs is killing him. I ain't got to kill him, mm. you know. But had it been that he wasn't, and he was fine and just, you know, just living his life, then I, most likely I was ready to, I was prepared to kill him wow. just because of what happened to him. Wow. Now talking about growing up in a in a violent world, uh, how, how did you find peace and safety at all in that world? Well, you really don't. You just kind of go with the flow of everything, and you you try to look for that 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 space of peace in your life because you know no one will live no one wants to live a chaotic life or a life full of violence and things of that nature, and um, you become accustomed to the lifestyle. I mean, the culture of violence is like breathing really heavy in the, in the cities, you know, cities like Chicago, Philadelphia and uh, other cities that are out there, Pittsburgh, New York. You know, so this is like kind of what we grow up into. And like I said, it's learned behavior. So you become accustomed to that kind of lifestyle and think that this, this is all that is offered to you, you know, and you just try to live, survive the best way you can based on the knowledge that you have. Mm hmm. You know. Now, did, did you have a, a a close friend when you were a boy? Yeah, I had a few close friends. I, actually, I had a lot of best friends that guys I call my brothers because I didn't have brothers that lived with me. 
uh, in Philadelphia. I had brothers down south, but I didn't have brothers that lived with me in Philadelphia. So a lot of the, the guys that I, I connected with that was more like me, quiet and laid back, didn't cause trouble, you know, wasn't real wild and rowdy. I had friends like that that I took into my intimacy. And um, I had like 10 friends that I grew up as a teenager, 13 or 14 years old, like 10 of us were just like that. We had friends and, you know, we all had the same dilemmas, the same problems. You know, our fathers weren't in our house. They were in jail doing life or in jail, in and out of jail, or they weren't around at all. You know, and our mothers really just raised us and took care of us. You know, we called each other mom's mom and things of that nature. But we, like, stuck tight and close together and trying to look out for each other. Was there, did any one of them jump to mind to stand out for you? Well, I mean, I can recall a few incidents. Like, for all, like, it's ironic that all of my friends, like, like five of my close friends died from something of a different course. You know, like, my first friend, he was shot up 11 times. He was, he was murdered. I was, like, 18 at the time. And at the time, we were sell, selling drugs. We were heavy into selling drugs. He wasn't a drug dealer at all. He didn't sell drugs. He didn't carry guns. He was just a guy who liked to have fun and hang out with us and be silly because we, we should ride bikes together as we were kids. You know, and then he eventually got into a dispute with somebody over his ex-girlfriend. And the guy wound up shooting him up and killing him. And that kind of, you know, it kind of, like, made me think, like, okay, well, this is not going to happen again. You know, anybody who tries to hurt any of us or or me, I wasn't going for it. So it kind of like in height, it's kind of heightened to increase the violent mentality that I that I had already. Mm. You know, and just not not having therapy for that, not even being talked talked to about losing your best one of your best friends. You know, that kind of I mean allowed us this allowed us just to go ahead and deal with it ourselves in the way we could deal with it. And the only way we know how to deal with things is through violence, you know. So it, it's a it's the culture of it, and most people who don't deal with the trauma that affects them in their lives, it either comes out either one way or another, either through drug addictions or through addiction to violence, or some other kind of addiction through alcohol, or to just give up on life. Period. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that boy's name? That boy that you who died. Yeah, Raul. Yeah, his name is Raul Edwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talk about him all the time in my story. I wrote about him in my book as well. So, you know, he's fresh on my mind. All my friends are definitely fresh on my mind because all of them added something to my life, whether it was negative or positive. All of them was a part of me, a part of my makeup and part of me growing up to be the person I am today. So, Are, are, all, you, uh, are you in touch with uh, any of them today? Yes, my Oh, well, you know, when I was arrested, three of my friends were locked up with me. So I'm definitely in touch with them because we went through the strongest battles together in that court system, facing the death penalty and facing life. You know, so we just stuck together really strong, you know, and we, we made it through and we made all made it out. And um, they're doing well now. So we stay in contact with them. One of my friends just got married, uh, Javon. He just got married uh, about two months ago. I went to his wedding and my other other co-defendant, who was locked up with me as well. He got married like a year ago, two years ago. So they're living a good life. They're working, having a family, you know, back to normal and understand, you know, the, the mistakes that we made as young kids growing up in the inner city. And um, they, they, they happy to see me go to new heights with my life and, and, and transform myself the way that I did, you know, and be able to give back to the community. 
It's beautiful, yeah. man. That's beautiful. Yeah. At what age did you join a gang? Well, I won't, we won't call it gangs in Philadelphia because um, it's not really the, the traditional way that gangs come together. Like, you get jumped in and you got to do something to be a part of the group. No, it's more like us. We're like more like brothers who grew up together, went to school together, and hung around each other all the time. And we just had our close niche friends. Like, we knew a lot of people all over Philadelphia. And we have friends in different locations and different areas that are part of different streets. I mean, so it wasn't like you go to battle and war with different turfs and stuff like that. It was more so that we all grew up together. We all went to school together. And sometimes we might have altercations with other guys from different sections of South Philadelphia, North Philly, or West Philly. But no one's a leader in our group. Everybody's their own leader. You know, nobody can tell you what to do. I mean, so we just try to just help each other out the best way we knew how. So protecting each other or feeding each other, I mean, or letting each other stay over each other's house. No, so things like that. So it's not really a gang. You can call it like a brotherhood somewhat. Mm, somewhat mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, when you said you uh, would go to battle with other uh, other people in a different turf, uh, what kind of battles were they? Well, mainly it's, it started off first as like fights. Like, you know, we used to fight different guys from that went to our school that lived probably seven blocks away from us. You know, they were like different groups of young guys all over. And then we, we got into the drug trade. You know, it got really, it got heavier because a lot of guys didn't sell drugs. A lot of young guys didn't sell drugs because they were too afraid to sell drugs at that time. You know, um, but we did. And um, we got, you know, started making money, you know, buying cars and stuff like that and, and looking real nice and expensive clothes and things of that nature. But then guys would get jealous, you know, and say certain things of disrespect to us or or to other females around us and then they get back and we have an argument and then it turns into uh, a fight or in that case that i went to jail it was turned into a shootout you know so wow um, man. yeah so you were making money and you were looking fly right now <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me ask you um can you describe the sense of power that you get you got from being a successful hustler on the street because i know that that's very seductive. I mean, you right. know, and that's why kids get drawn in. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's very seductive, especially coming from a place where as though, you know, you, your mother struggled a lot. And then being a, in a materialistic world where we thought when you were kids, you had fancy clothes and shoes and sneakers, then you were worthy. I mean, it was that was your worth, you know, and if you didn't have that, then you was like bust on and, and people talked about you, you know, made fun of you. You know, so coming from a place like that and thinking that, you know, we don't know who we are as individual people. So uh, we become more when we have materialistic things that show how how good we look, how much we shine and how much money that we think that we value. So we value materialistic things that gave us value. You know, so when you start making your own money and develop your own independence uh, through hustling, it's like the best feeling in the world because you don't have to ask mom for money for haircuts. You got to ask money mom to go out to, to buy sneakers, the sneakers you want, you know, instead of getting the, the, the $30 sneakers, you can get the hundred dollars sneakers now, you know, and just look good for yourself and feel good and feel better about yourself. You know, because like I said, we place value in those materialistic things and we didn't know who we were as individuals to have that know we had our own self worth and that we should value our own self and value our life. You know, um, we didn't have that. So only thing we value was some material things and having money was like, you know, having medicine.
Mm. You know, we just, we, we just sick nature. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. that kind of gave us a cure. That's a, that's a great image, man. Can you describe the incident that uh, put you in jail? Well, you know, we, we was in a skating ring. Um, we always go skating. And uh, that's like one of the hangouts on a Friday night. And a friend of mine, a younger friend of ours, got into an altercation in the bathroom. And I wasn't sure what it was about. Was passing the weed or was just emotions that was flaring from previous things that took place or the jealousy that was out there. You know, so uh, I thought the conversation uh, or the argument was was done with in the bathroom because I know they ceased it, like put it to a cease. And everybody was been cool and all right. So I didn't pay it no mind. I didn't really go to the bar. I didn't even really go to the bathroom to see what was going on. I just somebody else told me about it. You know, so I said, everybody cool. So we, we cool. So I was still in there talking to a young lady. And um, when it was closing time, it was time for us to leave. And we was like the last ones to leave out because we were still in there messing around and playing. And they was taking time, taking the skates off. By the time we, every time we go outside, it's, the corners are flooded. The four corners are flooded. So everybody still hang out for like at least a half an hour before it closed up. And then we all go our separate ways. But this time we walked out the door and there were shots fired at us, you know, and I immediately jumped behind a pole and my friends like ducked down to the ground, trying to hide behind cars. And one of my best friends, he was up against the wall because he was kind of high, you know, so he really couldn't get his stuff together. And I was like, yo, get down and shooting, you know. So uh, one of my friends wound up getting shot in his leg and he started screaming like, oh, he shot, he shot my leg. So I'm looking and I see the guys that are shooting right across the street from me. I mean, so I pulled my gun out and I fired twice. And that at that those three guys and I hit one of them and he fell to the ground and I was afraid to walk over to you know finish finish him off. But then I seen the cops come and spin the corner and I start walking away. Everybody was just running and I run because I didn't want them to see me run because they might have chased me. So I just walked walked away. You know then. Um, I ain't found out what happened to the next day. A friend called my house and in a panic, calling my sisters and telling them that I killed somebody that night and don't come down South Philadelphia because my mother lived in West Philly and I was over her house. And um, my sister got into a panic. Like, what happened? What you do? What you do? I said, I ain't do nothing. I was like still calm. I said, they talk about the wrong person. It's the wrong will. They got this other guy named Will. He did it. They get our, <laughs> uh, they get our names confused. You know, so I try to keep them calm so they won't call my mom. My mom panic. And everything else, because she had some, she heard some rumors about me selling drugs. She didn't really know because I was good at hiding things because I was so quiet and sneaky, you know. But she just heard rumors about it, and um, she did find a gun in my in the in the basement one day that I had that I took, had to take out of there. So I just try to keep them calm, like you know, everything's okay. That's not me. It's somebody else. So he's like, you sure? I said, like, yeah, I'm going outside. I'm gonna check it out and see what's going on. So I had left the house and went down south fully and just to see what would happen. Then I found that he died. You know, my friends like, you know, he died. This and that. So I was all right. So what's next? You know, and he was like, hey, the guys, they're looking for you. So they're gonna kill you. They want, they threaten to take your life. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not gonna do nothing to nobody. Then don't don't do nothing to me. If you don't try to do nothing with me, then I'm gonna leave you alone. All his friends. You know, so they started with me. Then I was gonna finish it. You know, that's that's kind of mentality I had. You know, so um, after that, they start locking locking my friends up. You know, like. One got locked up, then the second one got locked up, then the third one got locked up. Then they was never looking for me until probably the fourth week, and then a month later I got locked up. And then, um, and then we was all in, in jail, placed in prison. How old were you? 
I was 19 at the time. I just turned 19. 19. Wow. So you were convicted, and what kind of sentence did they give you? Well, I was convicted of third-degree murder, and I was sentenced to 20 years. Well, I was really sentenced to 25 years, but they suspended five years of my sentence. So it was 20 years. I can get out on good behavior in 10 years, you know. So um, that's what, when I was sentenced, um, it was like two years. I was already two years in jail already before I went to trial and, and got sentenced. So I had like two, year, two, two years and a half already in in time, good time. You know, so um, I just started my journey on, on changing my life. You know, the, um, the year that I was arrested before I got sentenced, I had a son. My son was born because my girlfriend was two weeks pregnant before I got locked up. And that kind of like gave me an epiphany to like, you know, change and really think about my situation and think about where I'm at, you know, and do I want to be in this place for the rest of my life, you know? And, um, knowing that I had a son out there, I had a responsibility to take care of him and guide him, give him the guidance that I didn't get or receive from my father, give him the love that I didn't receive from my father, give him the protection that I didn't receive from my father, you know? And, um, I knew the only way I can do that if I got myself together first, you know. So I began to, you know, rehabilitate myself because the prisons don't rehabilitate you. Well, but yeah. when 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 did that begin, Will? I mean, when did that, that process begin? Nine months, nine months. Um, when I after I got locked up, I mean, I was still waiting trial. Okay. You know, and um, nine months later, my girlfriend had my son. You know, and I called home. My sister said, "You, your father. Congratulations." And it was like one of the happiest times of my incarceration, you know, so because I, I thought it would be a girl. I wasn't sure. It was a boy that I knew I had a real responsibility to protect him. Um, so when I see him on the visit, went to the visitor room and I just looked at him, just stared at him, just, just imagine myself with him and walking around the streets and walking around to the malls and playing basketball with him and showing him how to tie his shoes and playing basketball, all the things that I didn't get a chance to experience with my father. You know, so I was like, I really got to change my life. I really got to do this for him. He's my why. You know, even I wouldn't do it for myself, but now I had a reason, a strong reason why to change. Mm -hmm. So I was really convicted in my heart. You know, I wasn't worried about the conviction of the court. I was convicted in my heart to do the best I could do for myself, for him, and for my my family who really uh, supported me during this process, you know. um, That's very powerful stuff. And before we get in, we're definitely going to get into the steps you took to right. turn yourself around. But what what jail were you in? Well, I was placed in uh, the county prison at first called D.C. Detention Center. And then after you go there for like a two weeks, you get placed in the Holmesburg prison. The Holmesburg prison was called the Terror Dome. And it was the, the worst prison in the state of Pennsylvania. And the reason being is because everyone who had high bills and very vicious crimes were placed in that prison. You know, you could be a part of the Italian mafia. They was in there, uh, black mafia guys, the junior black mafia, different um, organizations, um, criminal organizations that were in that prison, regular guys, rapists, murderers, drug dealers, uh, kingpins. Everybody was in that jail and it was a real radical jail. So uh, my first time um, being locked up and I was in the detention center, I had a, um, a family member who was a correctional officer at D.C. And he's like, you don't have to go over there. 
if you don't want to go over there, you can stay here. I can make sure you stay here. And I was like, no, nah, I'll go over there. I mean, I'm, I'm being in jail anyway. So I didn't see me running from anything. I mean, so um, I said, just send me over. Them send me over. You know, and I, I seen a grown man like crying and hiding in the cell. I was like 19. At the time, this guy like, had to be like 28, 29. He was hiding in the cell, trying not to go to Holmesburg. I said, that must be really, really bad over there. This guy's a grown man. And he's scared to death, you know, to go to that prison. So I was going to face my fears regardless. Like, I mean, I didn't think I had. I mean, I know I had to worry about some people probably trying to get back at me or do something to me. But I wasn't really, I'm not going to be a scared person in jail. I wasn't scared on the streets. So I wasn't going to be scared nowhere else. You know, so I just said, send them, them send me over there. Then they sent me to Holmesburg, which is like a, a, a prison that has a 30-foot wall, uh, like a 30-foot door. You know, that you go in and you see like you're in a real jail, like a real jail. You know, it was an old jail, so it looked like a real castle type of jail. It was built like a Ferris wheel. And it had like like eight blocks from A to F um, blocks, and it was overcrowded, like packed with inmates. And it sounded like you walk into a stadium. Because you hear all the inmates just making noise and shouting and screaming, yelling, TV's loud and everything else. And you're just walking down the corridor with your box in your hand and just, you know, just looking out for yourself and making sure nobody's trying to jump on you. Because people know you're coming to the jail. When you get shipped, the inmates know everything, what's going on in the streets and what's going on in the jail system. I mean, they know who's coming over there, what jail you're going to. They know all that. So if somebody's looking for you, they, they can find you. Now, did you align yourself with any particular individuals as soon as you went in? No, I already knew guys that were locked up from the streets already. I had a few friends, a few older guys that was from my neighborhood that was locked up. My my niece's father, he was locked up in there. So I knew people that were in there already, you know. Um, but that don't mean anything. You still got to hold your own. You know? So in relation to that, did you have to do anything uh specific to win respect right away in jail no not necessarily right away because you people already know you from the streets and you know like you know they heard about you so a lot of guys they won't try you immediately because they don't know you what kind of guy you are and me being a quiet person i always i always had this experience as a kid growing up being a quiet person and i understood the behaviors and the mentality of the people so i was able to read people at a young age and just by going into jail, I was able to read individuals and know who were the troublemakers, who were the guys that didn't want no trouble, but was really violent, like me, and guys who just, you know, just respect the people who had respect for themselves. You know, so a lot of guys that really got beat up or hurt or raped were guys who really try to be somebody they wasn't or somebody was just directly after that person. You know, so um, I got into a few fights in the jail. I mean, it, it, as time went by, I mean, as I was in there, because of geographicalness, like the guys from North Philly didn't like the guys from South Philly or West Philly. So it was a real geographical area. And you get into fights based on stuff like that, not really stuff that happened so on the streets. You know, um, so um, a lot of guys probably respected me on the streets or even in jail because I respect myself and I respect everybody else. Like, I don't, I ain't going to do nothing to you that if you ain't doing it to me, I'm not going to do nothing to you, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's how I played, and people knew I was always fair with everybody. I was fair regardless. But if you if you try to do something to me, that I was gonna really hurt you. That's the kind of mindset I had. Mm-hmm. Now you made this decision. Wow, that was an interesting sound. What was that? <laughs> oh, a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you uh, you made a decision when you when you met your 
wow, what was that? <laughs> That's the same bike riding down the street. It's a city of Philadelphia. You hear bikes when they get warm. Is bikes all around the place? Oh, that's right. It is warm, man. It's warm here too. Anyway, you made that decision when you saw your son that you were going to change your life. Now, what steps did you take to do that? Well, the first, the first step I took was it's kind of, it's kind of um, crazy as I think about it now. Um, one of the things that I learned today, especially about emotional intelligence. Have you know, are you familiar with emotional intelligence? Oh yeah. Yeah, so the steps I took was the emotional intelligence step, basically. And I, I did the self-evaluation. That's the first thing I did was um, evaluate my life and when I was a kid. I went back to the state of mind that I was in when I was seven to eight years old. I have a great memory, so I don't forget too much. You know? And uh, I just thought about how I was, how quiet I was, how thoughtful I was as a kid. I always ponder and reflect over different things about the serious, the seriousness of life. I was a serious kid when I was younger. My friends always tell you, like, well, you was always serious. But I, I was always serious because I was always thinking. I was a thinking person. You know, so I would think about, you know, life and death. Why do we, why are we born? What is our purpose in life and things of that nature? So I just went back to visit those, day, those thoughts. And so I think it to myself that now I'm 19 years old. I might have a clearer view of what life is about, you know. Because I knew I was, I, I lost myself in the streets and I was starting to think about what made me this person. How I become fearless, how I become a person who didn't care or uh, a person who just, um, de dehumanized themselves, you know? And, um, and because I thought about all the things that happened to me, you know, when a gun got put in my face or my friend got murdered, uh, when I was abused, I mean, with the belt from my mother, you know? And um, when I try to do the right thing, and sometimes the things went wrong, and and how I was influenced by the streets, and this is the only way I thought of the way to be, you know. So just based on the knowledge that I had, and some of the mistakes I made, dropping out of school, and not doing the things that my sisters did to become successful, you know, think about that. I was on the same path. I could have did the same thing they did, you know. So um, just reflecting on that, just forgiving people who hurt me and my family, and then forgiving myself for hurting other people. You know, or allowing people to hurt me, you know, or forgiving my father for not being in my life, you know, for him blaming my mother, you know, so for me being incarcerated, things of that nature. So I just start reflecting on everything that took place in my life that kind of structured my way of thinking so I can restructure it. You know. Yeah, that's powerful. And reframing. I mean, Anthony Robbins yeah. talks about that all the time. It's yeah. so crucial. Now, did you also use books to help you? No, not necessarily, because only books that were in jail were like, um, fictional books, like, like stories of the streets and stuff like that. Most people are into those kind of books. So they, they were the kind of books that were floating around. So, um, I, I really didn't get into like storytelling of, of street stuff. I didn't really care for it too much. So what, what I would do is I watch TV, I watch a movie, you know, I have a good conversation with another person that's smart. There's, there's a lot of smart guys in jail. You know, I have a good conversation with guys like that. Um, to try and I start studying the dictionary, uh, try to increase my diction so I can understand words and be able to articulate myself without using profanity. Uh, so um, a lot of things I want to challenge myself to do: stop cursing, uh, uh, think more about what I've been doing, the conversations I had with people, and who I start hanging around. So my friends that were locked up with me, you know, I hung around them still, but I started, you know, being by myself more so, so I can start getting myself together. You know, not being influenced by uh, my peers, 
I mean, because in jail is a real hostile environment. I know it will be a real hard transition to make because you're dealing with a lot of people with, with a lot of emotions and a lot of different situations and guys who got life in prison or guys that want to take their troubles out on somebody else, you know. You know, so I knew that if I was going to change, I couldn't wait to go home and change. I had to change while I was here in prison, mm. in this hostile mm. environment where I couldn't get away, you know, get away from the trouble. I, I had to be able to face the trouble, face my fears and be able to deal with them like a man should. And I was I was really strong about becoming a man. Like, I want to be a man. You know I mean, I'm going to do things that men do, you know, and being a boy, a teenage boy at the time is like, OK, what is that? You know, what what does a man do? I mean, so I had to reflect on what kind of images I would see in my life that were men and doing men things instead of grown people doing boy things, you know. It takes a lot so, of courage, man. It takes a lot of courage. Good for you. Yeah. yeah thank now, you. do you do you think that today's media promotes destructive images for kids to model? Of course. Uh, the, the, the society is built on violence. Uh, from day one, <laughs> you know, when America was established. So it, it's, it's created on balance. Mm. You know, so everything that we do, we're entertained by that. And there's a culture of balance. So we're entertained by that, by balance. You know, like a person who's addicted to drugs. I mean, he can't go to a party without having drugs. A person who's, who drinks alcohol all the time, he can't go to a party or have a good time without having a beer. You know, it's just something that you got to have in your life. You know, so if you bred it on that, I mean, and you see something, you want to, you, like people run, like now, especially with social media, like you see a fight out there, people are desensitized. They'll run to the fight and then, or run to the accident with their phones out just to record it and not really help the person that's going to, that's in the fight or in the incident, you know, because they're so quick to record everything. That's how desensitized we've become, you know, and because society creates that, mm. you know, create our own monsters. Oh, yeah. Very, very accurate perception, man. What was the biggest obstacle that you had to overcome when you got out of jail? Well, the biggest obstacle I, obstacle I had to overcome was finances. You know, because I, I love money. I love looking good. I love dressing nice. And I knew I wouldn't have those things. But I prepared myself mentally in prison because I said to myself, if I'm working for 19 cents an hour, you know, and I'm getting by, I mean, with commissary food and stuff like that, because I told my mother and them they could stop sending me money because I really wanted to face this prison cell as hard as I could possibly face it. You know, I didn't want them to be easy for me. I want to remember this particular situation so it can mold me and shape me, become a strong person. So I really didn't want no crutch. You know, I wanted to crawl, then I wanted to walk, then I wanted to be able to run. You know, so when I got out of prison, you know, me getting a, getting a job, I knew that would be a hardship for me getting a job because I'm a felon. And a lot of inmates are coming back, and that was their excuse for coming back. They didn't give us no job. You're a felon. You didn't get no job. Nobody's hiring nobody with no felony. And me having a homicide, I knew once they see my application, that was going to trash. <laughs> so I had to be resourceful to myself. I had to understand who I was. You know, and that self-reflection always allow you to understand and know you. And the more you know yourself, the more you know what you're capable of doing. You know, and I knew I was creative. You know, I knew I had skills. I knew I, I can learn quick, you know, and afford any opportunity. I can do anything I wanted to do. I put my mind to it, you know. So one one of the things that I, I, I knew I wanted to do was never come back to prison. That's the first thing I said to myself when I left the jail. I looked back at the mountains. I looked back at the, at the, the prison. 
Like, this is the last time I want to see you on the inside. I mean, unless I'm coming and teaching, which I've been doing now for the last 20 years. But never come back for another crime. And um, that was one of the challenges I had. I had 10 years to parole to walk off. And another one would be finances and trying to make money and not have my family take care of me for months and then years and, you know, then for the rest of my life. So I'm I'm really independent. And me being a boy, I, I wanted to help, not I mean, be a, a burden or someone. And unfortunately, my cousin gave me a job, got me a job in a warehouse where I started working in a warehouse for six six dollars and seventy something cents. You know, and just that the ego, like looking nice and being around the same friends and people used to you driving cars as a kid, and they they were, people people treat you how they remember you. You know, so mm. a lot of times guys go under pressure when they come home because people say, "Oh, you got money, you're a money getter, you this and that." And a lot of guys get under that pressure when they come from jail to try to get back to where they were. I mean, two years ago or five years ago or fifteen years ago, you know, and that puts them in a, in a bad space in place and uh, uh, forces them to do things that is against the law that they violate parole and they go back to jail within six months or a year, you know? So I, I had to handle those pressures really, really uniquely and, and, and think about every move that I make, every move, every day I had to use my brain because I knew that's, that's the a resource that, you know, was, is the guy, is God given and it's a powerful resource and we just use it, you know? So I just started using my brain and just being patient, you know, understanding what patience really is, you know, um, and you know, I started working my way to, you know, find a consistent job. And that job was you no know, paid consistently. And then um, I knew that the manager was taking advantage of me because he told me that, you know, you didn't, you didn't get no job nowhere else. Mm-hmm. You're a fellow. Ain't nobody else going to hire you and try to plant that in my head. But purpose was, was pointing out, pushing me. My purpose was pushing me. You know, I started to find like what I wanted to do with my life and my purpose was to get back to society, get back to the youth, get back to adults and teach them about my experience. So I couldn't be in a nine to five. That wasn't for me. You know, so all the, all the negative things that was going on in that nine to five, it kind of forced me out of it, that situation. Then I wanted to quit the job, you know, and so now what I'm going to do now, I can go easily go back to the streets and hustle because I got friends, I got connections, you know, and I can do that for a little time and then be okay, or I can do that for a little time and get locked up. So I already knew what that path was like. My thing was I wanted to see what the journey was like that I'd never been on before. I want to take that ride, you know, and create my reality and create my new life. Just get rid of the old life and create a new life, reinvent myself. So how did you find your way to what you do now? You're a life coach, correct? Yeah, I'm a life coach, a motivational speaker, national motivational speaker. And um, a mentor. So, um, so what was that job that you left? Where, the job I left the warehouse. The warehouse, okay. And then you went to do what? How did you? What was the next step? Well, the next step was uh, I filed for unemployment and I actually won. And somebody told me about this how the system works. I was familiar with the system. So someone said, "Go file for unemployment, see if you can get it." And I said, oh, "All right, I'm gonna try that." So I filed for unemployment. They fought me too for now, the old company, because I had quit and left. But they uh, they awarded me the um the unemployment. So I had a check coming in to take care of my new son, because I had now I had two sons and I had a car and I had a girlfriend and we had a bill. So um after that I decided to go to the corner barbershop that opened up and my friend who was just released from prison, he started working there cutting hair. And he's like, Well, why don't you start cutting hair? 
And I was like, yeah, I should do that because I always had a passion to cut hair because my grandma was a beautician. And I was like, yeah, I want to do that. And he's like, just ask him. Ask the guy who owns it. Ask Jazz. So I was like, all right, Jazz, can I get a chair? He's like, yeah, go ahead. It's just simple. Like, no background check, no application, no nothing. He's like, yeah, go ahead. Whatever you need to learn, we'll teach you. And I was like, wow. I said, like, all right, great. I went and got my stuff. I was in a barbershop. And I just learned how to cut and be patient and know how to, I'm going to deal with customers. And I wasn't a real sociable person, but I was coming into that sociable person, become more open to people's feelings and 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 their thoughts and their visions and stuff like that and being a counselor there talking to talking to guys i mean who have problems with their girlfriends or relationships or street problems i mean and, and things of that nature and just helping them and navigate their way through some of the issues they were dealing with so i became like a counselor inside the barbershop you know and then eventually i started going to the schools and wanted to get back to the young men and women who you know were lost in the same cycle that i was lost in you know, to give back to them and show them a new direction, you know, a new frame of thought. And then I started doing adults. And then I started going back into the prisons and started, you know, trying to get back to those guys and teach them how to transform their lives while they're in jail, you know, which is the best place to do it at. And just showing them the steps I took in order to become, you know, the best version of myself, my seven steps of transformation. You know? How did the, how, how did, did you, to go back into the jails when you've come out with, um, a homicide on your record, was it hard for you to be permitted to go back in? No, no, it was not. It's it's, it's a thing where as though um, when you have connections with like, you know, um, councilmen and, and state representatives or uh, I was I was really getting uh, a lot of awards in this from the city of Philadelphia for the work that I was doing because no one really would step up and, and help the youth, you know, in our community. And I knew how to connect with them. I knew how to relate to them, you know, because I knew where they were at, where they were. And a lot of guys who were actually doing these programs who may study in college somewhere or um, created a curriculum for mentoring a program that wasn't really working or resonating with the youth. You know what I mean? I knew exactly where they were because they were just like me. You know, so I was able to connect with them and help them and some of the teachers understand um, the mentality of the youth they, they were trying to teach, they were trying to service. You know, so they kind of welcome me um, that way within the city and as a second chance and, and giving back. But they didn't, they didn't have money to pay me. <laughs> I mean, so it was like a lot of volunteer work that I was doing. I just looked at it as, you know, karma, just giving back because I, I created so much havoc and, and, and violence in the world, in the community, that it was time for me to give back to that same community that I caused a lot of problems and to actually equal up, equal up on level up to the good, the, the good that I was doing to equal up to the bad that I did, mm-hmm. you know, so um, they started recognizing the work, you know, and give me citations and awards and stuff like that. So, you know, the Wartons, they'll call me in to speak to the inmates. Now they'll call me as a keynote speaker. Can you come speak to the inmates? And they just love my story because like no one would believe that I could do this. I mean, if it's even the, the the, the life doctors like who deal with transformation like you say you made an extreme transformation like something that we never think that a person could come back from mm-hmm. you know? mm. so um, that's how they, they give me that respect because they value my knowledge hey, and you I know didn't what? go to school it's brother it, it's perfect that as you're telling me this there's a siren in the background right <laughs> <laughs> let me yeah. ask you how do you approach empowering misfits, gangsters, convicts with compassion? Well, the thing is, is that 
everybody wants peace in their life. Everybody wants that, no matter what how hard criminal you are. And the reason why we're people are that way because of certain things happening in their life that was not addressed. And that's when we come to we create that kind of behavior in order to, you know, um, ex, in order to express ourselves, you know, in other ways. Some people express their what they're paying through tattoos. You know, some people express their pain through art and singing and doing poetry. Some people express their pain through violence, you know, and being attached to someone that they think that has love for them. Like, that's how most of the gangs are formed, because they have a connection of love with each other. And we're supporting you and we're here for life. Most of those children are lost. They didn't have that, that love at home. They didn't have that father figure. They didn't have that motherly love. I mean, so they get it somewhere, other places they go looking for to fill that void. I mean, and when you can really talk to them heart to heart and not instead of ear to ear, then they can feel your pain and understand that you resonate with them. And now I want, I want to get out of it like you got out of it. You know, like one kid I went in California, he said, man, I didn't think I had a second chance. You know, I'm a felon, you know, and I didn't think I, I really didn't think I had a second chance. So what was he going to do? He's going to go back out there and do the same thing over and over again. Why? Because society said, you we're not giving you a second chance. And he believed what society told him. But I told him for myself, I didn't believe what society told him. I knew there was always a chance because they're not in control. The creator's in control of everything. You know, and then you're initially in control of that because you have the power of choice. You can choose to do what you want to do, and what you put out there is going to come back to you. Mm -hmm. Do you begin by telling your own personal stories that gets them to uh, trust you and know that you actually have you've been to hell and back? Yes, well, they can actually tell. I mean, a person like me, I can tell a person been through something, even as a kid. I mean, in my moments of anger and frustration, uh, sometimes I didn't want to be talked to, but I knew if I was talking to a real person, then I said, all right, this is the real dude. I'm going to give him that respect. Mm -hmm. And they know that I'm a real person, so they're going to give me that respect because wow, whatever questions they need answered, I can probably answer those questions. Now, somebody who come up and never been in their story or been in life before, like, you can't relate to me. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand where I'm coming from. And they automatically shuts down. So you only got like 30 seconds to really win a person over, especially the young people. You know, so mm. I'm going to a room of 200 kids or 300 kids or one kid. I mean, I'm already assessing the crowd. I mean, and feeling the energy in the room. And then once I get my energy, see, it's a, it's a, it's a visible thing. Energy is invisible, you know. And once you understand that the energy is in a room, then you can actually connect with that energy and change it. You yes, know, so. you can. Yes, you can. That is very powerful. It's so true. Now, if you had to choose just one thing to say to a troubled youth, just one thing, what would it be? One thing to say to a troubled youth, I would say to them that you're given three gifts when you're born. And those three gifts are the gift of life, the gift of rationale, your brain, which is your most valuable asset, and the power, your gift of power, your power of choice. You can choose to do different. Mm hmm. Beautiful. Mm. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Now, if you could change just one thing in the world, what would that be? Um, one thing I would change in the world is. I will change 
to say. I think one of the biggest problems in the world is people don't know how to deal with life. That's one of our biggest problems. That's why we have a heavy drug overdose, opium, a lot of alcohol abuse, and suicide and murder. So I think that's only because of the fact that people don't know how to deal with life, you know, and we can help people to navigate their way through life, you know, teach them that. Then that's the thing. I one thing I would want to change: be able to educate people well. Well, it looks like you're doing it now. Yes. Where Where do you see yourself, Will, in five years? In five years, I hope I'll be, you know, flying all across the world and, and speaking and, and speaking my truth and hopefully changing lives along the way. Now you mentioned that you went to school again. Did you? Yeah, I went back to. I went to. Um, well, I got my GED when I was in diploma in, in prison. Because the first thing I, I achieved when I started to change my life around, I knew I needed that. But when I got out, I went to community college here in Philadelphia for a leadership program. But then they um they they stopped. What did they do? They um dismissed the leadership program. They don't have they didn't have that that major anymore. So I could just continue on doing the work there because I was already doing the work in the community. I just wanted a degree in leadership. And once they, um, once they stopped it, then um, I just stopped going to school altogether and continued with the work I was doing already. You know, so if I go back, I'm not sure. I mean, it had to be for something that I, I really think I need. But well, I mean, it, it seems like, I mean, my, look, I, I believe that you, you are a person, and I, and I believe that education, the real education, happens right. from the way we deal with life and you you've got a phd in life man i mean like that yeah. that i that i know i can uh it's in your wisdom it's in your attitude and everything that you say and now the things that you're doing now you wrote a book you did well yes what's the name of it the name of the book is inner city youth i see why Letter I, letter C, letter Y is is the acronym for I see why some of the problems that we're having, and inner city youth about young people growing up to be adults one day, you know, and the things that we go through that we carry on in our life um, as we are older as we have not dealt with them, and it's about my life basically and an autobiography of my life growing up where it stems from my mother and father first and then my birth coming into the world and where I was uh, when I finished writing the book 10 years ago. So I, I had a lot of reviews on the book on Amazon, great reviews from people from all walks of life, all classes, rich people, poor people, white, black, and different. I mean, everybody, they said they can, they can really connect with the book. And I was not, that wasn't my intentions. My, my intention to write the book was basically for my children and, and their children. So they can know like who their, their father was and their grandfather was or their great grandfather was and, and know that what, what's in me is in them too as well, you know, because I, I for me not being identified, being able to identify myself as a kid because my father went around. I didn't know my grandfather's on either side. It's like, who am I? I don't know my strengths. I don't know my weakness. I don't know my gifts. I don't know nothing. I mean, so now that my sons, they, 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 they know who they are because of me. They know their skills, where they get their skills from, their patience, their humility, or or their, their knowledge, their intelligence, their, their skill to, to write and do poetry or, or be creative. They know all that come from me because that's what I do. I mean, mm -hmm. and that's that's able to identify with, with with yourself at a young age. I mean, and that's what I was lacking as a young boy. I didn't know who I was. 
You know, if you don't know who you are, you become you don't know who you are, you're gonna become what society names you to be. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Les Brown? Yes, I, I I've been I listened to him um probably like a few times, like four times I think on YouTube or something. He's amazing. He really is. Yeah, have you ever heard? Yes, have you ever heard yes. him talk about yes the the moment that turned him around when when that when that teacher said come up and write on the board? Oh yes, I think I did hear that one. Yeah, uh, and, one and, and yeah. he said he said I can't, sir. He said why not? He said because I'm the dumb brother, the dumb twin, and right. the teacher wouldn't accept it. And he said, son. Don't ever let somebody else's opinion of you become your opinion of yourself. Right. And that yeah. that moment changed his life. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Absolutely incredible. Yes, um, yep. You know, I, I I met Les a couple of times. And I remember once at an event, he was sitting in the audience as a student, and and I I looked at him. And I said, Les, it's great to see you, and he just smiled and he goes, It's great to be seen. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to meet him one day. Hopefully, I will. Oh man, that, that is, sure. Listen, he he works with speakers, you know, and uh, he has a, yeah. a program on on presentation and telling your story. Right. Now, besides, oh, your your book is available still on Amazon. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. What about? Can you rec? Is there a book that you would recommend to people as a favorite book? Mm, uh well. Not necessarily. A lot, of, a lot of my research is on YouTube. I do a lot of research on YouTube. I don't really read books. Okay. That, unless somebody recommend me one. And um, it's mostly like books of individual people that I know that they have written themselves. But most of the research, I mean, it's, it's, it's so, information is so vast today. Like, it ain't like we was growing up when we were kids and we had to go to the library. You can just go right on Google and, and YouTube and you'll find everything you want to find, you know, so. Uh, most of my research is going here. May I recommend the book to you? Yes, you can. The Four Agreements by Don oh. Mi- by Don Miguel Ruiz. Okay. The Four Agreements. The four Agreements. I think yeah. you. I think you might resonate with it. Now, do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite quote? Yes, the quote that I use to help me build strength and character and face any challenge. Oh, while I was in prison, was where there's a will, there's a way. Old cliche. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was that will, you know, that willpower. So that was one of my favorite quotes. And I, I write quotes too. Uh, I have another book of quotes coming out. So I've, I've been writing books. I've been writing quotes for the last uh, seven years. Wonderful. I put it on Facebook. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that um, that quote resonates on a couple of levels because. Man, your name is Will. Right. <laughs> so, so where there's a will, there is yeah, definitely right. a way, man. That's right. Now, I embody uh, that. That's <laughs> I embody that, that, that question. Yes. How can people contact you, Will? Well, they can contact me um, through my website, www.will, with two L's, W-I-L-L, V as in Victor, little, L-I-T-T-L-E. Or you can uh, message me on Facebook under Will Latif Little, L-A-T-I-F, Latif, Will Latif Little. Or on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, too, as Will Little. Will Little. Oh, you can email me. You can email me, which is a, a quicker way uh, through my email. is litwillie, L-I-T-T-W-I-L-L-I at AOL.com. 
So slow that down. It's what? what oh, yes. It? Lit Willie, L-I-T-T-W-I-L-L-I at okay. AOL.com. Beautiful. Will Little on LinkedIn. Now, what does the V stand for in your name? V stands for Van. My middle name is Van. Vance? Van. V-A-N. V-A-N. Cool. Cool. Like Van. My father. Like Van. Like yeah, I'm, I'm a junior. Like 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 Van Morrison. Yeah, Van Morrison, Van Helen. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you any final thoughts for our listeners today. Well, one thought is um, you could check out my TED my TED talk on YouTube, how to become the best version of yourself. Mm. <clears throat> and also, is that um, we need peace, redemption, and forgiveness in the world. You know, and that's one of the organizations I created called Redemption, Forgiveness, Peace. And I know that everybody can resonate with those three words and it will change the course of their life. I absolutely agree with you 100%, my friend. Now, do you still rap? Oh, uh, do poems? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't rap no more. I rap when I was a teenager, but I changed it to uh, poetry now. It's, it's, it's more of my self-expression, articulating my lifestyle, so uh, the life of someone else. That I inspired to write um, their story. So you want me to um, do a piece for you? Oh well, if you want to, if you want to close okay. with that, I mean, you you did a nice one on um, on the YouTube uh, uh, the TED, TED talk. talk, yeah. Okay, all right, great. So I would do one that I didn't do on the TED talk, and this one is called "Look Into His Eyes," and this is a true story about a young man that I met when I came home from prison. He was about eleven years old out at 10 o'clock at night. And I was wondering why he was out this late at night asking for, asking for money. So um, he told me his story and what he really wanted the $2 for, which was from drugs, for weed. And I just took him back outside and I just said, look at the guys on the corner over here and over there and over there. And I said, all three of those men went to school with me and they all started off smoking weed. And now they're on heroin really, really bad. So if you want this to be your future, then you can take that $2 and you can go buy some weed with it, or you can just go home and be with your mother. You know, so a couple of days later, I was inspired to write this poem. It's called Look Into His Eyes. When I looked into his eyes, I seen his father wasn't there. And when I looked into his eyes, I seen his mother didn't care. When I looked into his eyes, I saw death and destruction. And when I looked into his eyes, I saw a suicidal button. But before I looked into his eyes, I set him down in a chair. And he said he needed money to get up from here to there. But was his mother really there? Was his pop really working? Then I looked into his eyes and seen this little kid was hurting. So I thought to myself, like, what's my position? Because I want to give him money, but the way he kept on twitching, he was acting kind of funny. So I said, is it weed or is it crack? He said, no, I need some money to get me there and back. I looked into his eyes and said, the truth, you're not sharing. He looked at me with a smirk like, man, why is you even caring? I said, I know this story oh too well. When I was your age, I used to use it myself. See, I was a fatherless child. I was raised by the streets. I made grilled cheese sandwiches over kerosene heat. I was a high school dropout. I experimented with drugs. 
I did petty thefts and robberies with the neighborhood thugs. See, I was a hustler on a block. I dip and dodge from the cops until I got caught. And that judge sentenced me to court. Now I'm back out on the street to shed some light on the truth. And I'm here to bring hope to America's own youth. He said, that's good and all. But why is it me you want to help? I said, when I looked into your eyes, when I looked into your eyes, I saw an image of myself. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much, man. You have delivered incredible value today, and that was a very, very beautiful way to end. Thank you. Thank you, Louis. Thanks for having me. It was a, it was a joy being on your show. Mm -mm. And hopefully change some lives. Yes, yes, sir. Indeed. Thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time today with me and Will Little. Will has given everybody today a gift. The wisdom that he shared with us, he earned every single bit of it by living a life that was extremely painful and a life that was extremely courageous by putting himself on the line, taking responsibility, growing from all of his suffering and becoming a man who now shines a light on the world. Please pay this forward. Let people know that they can hear this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. You're going to notice some changes on that podcast site. It's a new site, and I know you will enjoy it. You will also be able to download your gift that I've created for you, a free ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Also remember that our sponsor is Audible, and they are offering you, the listeners to this show, any audiobook of your choice absolutely free, as well as one month of all of their service for free as well. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. When I think about leaving you with something to act on, reflect on, and to use as fuel to grow and to change, from today's interview with Will, one of the things that stands out for me is the amazing courage that he displayed, especially when he was sent to a, a terrifying prison. He didn't have to serve his time there, but he chose to because he wanted to remember what that experience was like and take full responsibility for his actions. That's a rare human being. So my challenge to you is to look into your own life. Are there things that you're afraid to face that you know once you do face them, embrace them 
and meet their challenge that your life will grow immeasurably? Find the courage and the inspiration from what you heard today and ask this question, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Luis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.